I forget sometimes my parents and I were homeless when I was growing up. And it, and it, and it might be because, like, it, it never felt homeless. I mean, it, it wasn't like TV homeless where, where you come home and, and all your shit's in the street. But it, it, it was like some late payments here, some late payments there. And then there'd be this bright-ass red sign on the door letting us know that we've been evicted. And then we stay at Nana's for a few months until mom and dad's money got less funny. But I'd never felt homeless, just, I don't know, inconvenienced. But I also know we did everything we could to conceal it. <laughs> I mean, my mom was fly as fuck. She had a job verifying health insurance at UPMC, and she sat in a cubicle all day long. But she went to work each day like it was Kennywood Day. That time of year again, Kennywood Park kicks off its summer season tomorrow. And I stayed with Jordans and, and Timberlands and Hillfigure Parkers and Carl Canai Jeans. And I, I know there's people going to hear that and be like, well, if you invested in stocks or savings accounts instead of sneakers, you wouldn't have been homeless. But that, that little bit of sneaker money ain't going to make no difference. When you're that close to the poverty line, every fucking day is a rainy day. And sometimes the irrational semi-purchases are rational as fuck. Because sometimes the performance of the middle class helps you navigate the world. People with nice clothes are treated better. With more compassion, more empathy, and more care than those who look poor. And sometimes it's... I don't know. I mean, sometimes it just feels good to have nice things. To wear nice clothes. To have cable TV. To eat a damn steak. But... One thing I couldn't have was my parents not having a car and me not having a driver's license. Which, it, it wasn't really all that big of a deal when we lived in the city. But then we moved to the suburbs. You know, the other parents had cars and all the other kids at school had driver's licenses. So I did what any other aggressively self-conscious 18-year-old would do. I lied. Oh, yeah, I can't drive because, you know, my parents... Um, my parents let my Nana borrow the car because her optometrist was like, yo, she can't catch the bus anymore because she can't see. So she was like, you know, we need to let her drive her car to choir practice. Nah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I know how to drive. What the fuck I need a license for, man? That shit racist. It's like, yeah, you know, I had my license right, but um, I was using it as a jitney before and the cops stopped me and like jitney is illegal on the weekends and they was like, yo. We're gonna let you go for a minute this time, but we gotta take your license. But you ain't gonna arrest you, but you just can't be jittying on the weekends. These lies continued through college. And even after I graduated until the source of shame shifted. I lied because I was ashamed of being a grown-ass man without a driver's license. I eventually got it at 26. But that shame... That shame still lingered. It bubbled up in 2011 when I got a $3,000 check for the editing gig, which at that point was the most money I ever had at one time. I immediately used it for a down payment on a 2011 spanking new cocaine white Dodge Charger, which was and still is the cheapest hood rich car you could possibly buy. And then five years later, when the first advance check for my book deal hit my bank account, it bubbled up again. And I did it again but this time I bought a Maserati I mean the cheapest one <laughs> but yeah 
This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. I mean, it's it's funny because like out of all the self-consciousness and, and vulnerabilities and insecurities I've written and talked about, some in, in this very space, this shit right here gives me the most anxiety. I mean, even even when I was talking about the Maserati earlier, I, I felt the need to qualify it by, by saying that I bought the cheapest one because I think there's like this nebulous convergence of different shames assembling in my head. So... There's a remnants of the shame of, of growing up broke. And, and then there's the shame of the obvious as fuck overcompensating for that shame. And then there's the anticipated shame from other people for being just such a fucking capitalist and consumer. And, and also the anticipated shame from other writers for making enough money to even do this shit. And then also the shame for even feeling shame. I mean, would, would some white boy tech founder or finance bro feel the same angst for buying himself a nice toy? And then also wondering if the shame is, I don't know, another performance too. A way of allowing myself to feel bad-ish as a punishment for doing something I know I want to do, but know also know that I'm probably not supposed to. So this is Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we're all suffering from PTBD, post-traumatic brokenness disorder. And on today's show, we're going to talk about the ways that talking about money and not talking about money fucks me up. Oh, I mean, my sister had a birthday recently and like playfully floated the idea that I take all of us to Vegas. All of us? And I was like, like all, like we, there are four of us. Okay. That I like sponsor a girl's trip to Vegas. And I was like, bitch, I'd rather pay a hitman to never talk to you again because that is a ridiculous thing to ask me, a regular person who writes jokes on the internet. So that's Samantha Irby, author of Meaty, Wow No Thank You, We Are Never Meeting of Real Life, a New York Times bestseller multiple times. She's from Kalamazoo, which is a city that exists in America somewhere. And like me, she's a recovering broke motherfucker. 
So we both kind of exist in this like surreal space where you're you're not poor anymore. Right. But because people know your name, because, you know, you have bylines in New York Times and your your book is a New York bestseller, New York Times bestseller, and you're writing for TV shows, people assume sometimes that you're rich mm-hmm. because they they see a name on TV. They see a name, you know, on the Internet and assume like a, a certain financial prosperity with it. Mm-hmm. With writing, especially like it's because you get like a lump sum at once, it feels both like a windfall and like a huge burden. Mm-hmm. But so I'll tell anybody like, sure, I sold a book for $70,000 and they paid it to me in thirds over the course of two years and then chop, you know, 40% off of that for the IRS. Mm-hmm. And then divide it by how many months. And then we're realistic. We're talking about like a realistic amount of money. What we make looks like money. But then like once you give the tax man his part and you like pay your bills and you pay off all the things that you put on credit when you didn't have any money, it doesn't feel like a lot of money. So when you were when you were growing up, you know, um, what did it mean to you to be middle class? God, I don't even know if I thought of that as a kid. I knew there were people doing better than us, but I don't know. For me, it was just like people who had jobs that they had to go to college to get and then like had two cars and a dog and a nice house. Like that in my mind was what the middle class was. For me, it was there. It was more specific than that. Okay, so I had a um, my closest friend. Uh, his his parents were both educators. His mom was a teacher, and his dad was a school principal, and so that that made them just firmly middle, probably upper middle, really. If you think about it, and they had they had the house with with two cars, had a pool. Um, and one of the like the in ground pools too that they, they never swam in, Ooh. but um, they definitely had an in ground pool. But the thing that that really stood out to me whenever I went over to their house was how much extra food they had, and and it wasn't and it wasn't like and it wasn't like we were like starving or hungry or anything like that. I mean, we were poor, but we were broke or poor, or whatever. But we weren't like that level. But I would go. And these motherfuckers had pantries, like multiple pantries. Oh, yeah. And like just. I guess whenever I went to anyone's house and they had name brand snacks, (laughs) I was like, oh, you guys really made it. Yeah. And so, again, when I thought of middle class, I thought of like Costco. I thought of having enough money to be able to just buy a whole bunch of food that that you're not going to eat. Even in that next month, mm-hmm. just having enough food again to 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 wait out a nuclear storm, a nuclear war. <laughs> I'm a working class person. I don't. I dropped out of college. I've always worked an hourly job. Like I had a book out and was still punching a clock. I had two books out and was still punching a clock. 
every day. Mm-hmm. And truly the only reason that I can do writing as a job. And I don't even look at it as a job. I feel like this is a hustle. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I feel like eventually people are going to be like, okay, we're tired of listening to your shit. And I can go back to what I'm supposed to be doing, which is like bagging groceries at Walmart or whatever. I firmly am like an hourly job kind of person. Everyone we know is moving from publicate from one failing publication to another failing publication, mm-hmm. like trying to get what they can until the bottom falls out. And I feel like it's the same for me. Like I, you know, I, I can't keep writing about my butthole for 20 i mean are people going to want to read that for 20 more years i, I would maybe i would want to read about your 60 year old butthole i definitely <laughs> would want to read about that Samantha. i mean I, I don't i don't think that you're giving us enough credit as your audience and fans who definitely want to read about 60 year old buttholes maybe they would but i am real i am realistic about my life uh i still am like very suspicious of every good thing that happens and i don't trust it and i'm always like you know an hour away from going to like fill out an application at walgreens which honestly would be fine because at least it's a you know the thing about like writing as a career um and why it doesn't make me feel like i've achieved anything is that it's all based on me and what I could do. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather have all my money like come from a corporation (laughs) (laughs) and have it be low stakes for me. Like all I have to do is show up at Target and put on my red shirt and like that's my job. When it's writing, it's like, man, all this hinges on my having an idea, that idea feeling marketable to someone and then convincing them to pay me for that idea in the hopes that other people would pay to have access to that. And I understand that it's like an amazing thing and I'm very grateful. I also am very realistic that sooner or later there will be no market for it. So that 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 feeling that you're that you're articulating about about your your talent uh, not necessarily, or having a shelf life, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I can't help but see the connection between that and even going back to the money thing, where, you know, if you grow up in a circumstance where money is, ten, is tenuous and, you know, whatever money you have today could be gone in an instant, you know, I, I, I think back, <laughs> yeah, I think back to your piece that you wrote for the Times, you know, a couple years ago about, when you're broke, there's no such thing as rainy day. Every day is a rainy day. Right, right. Yeah. I, I look at that kind of as a gift, sort of that discomfort, because I don't ever want to be caught off guard. You know, you ever like read stories or see things about like people who are unexpectedly broke or like something happens and they, you know, they cashed out. I don't ever want to get so comfortable that I'm not hyper aware that the bottom could fall out at any time. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like in despair because I don't know what to do. I never want to get so far away from the feeling 
of like that childhood poverty and like truly like eating out of the garbage. All your clothes come from Salvation Army. You can't afford to take the bus. You know what I mean? Like, like poverty, poverty, poverty. I don't ever want to get so far away from that feeling that if it were to happen again, I'd be paralyzed with fear. I, I don't know who or where I would be without that feeling. Even even right. as I've, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I, I can't even pretend that I haven't been successful because I have been. Right. You know, right, sure. but I still feel that way. I still believe that, you know, I still, like, I remember my car getting repossessed um, a few years ago. And today, I still feel some anxiety when I hear that beep, beep. <laughs> of a large truck backing up in the street because I think it's someone coming to take my car again. And this car is paid for. But I still feel that like that fight Don't or flight. Don't let my car take too long. You know, you put your card in with the chip Oh yeah. If mm. my car takes a second too long, my intestines liquefy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like... Oh, there's a line behind me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been playing. I've been playing fast and loose for too long. <laughs> I got too comfortable, mm. and now I can't afford, you know, these groceries. And I'm about to shit myself in front of everybody. I once was so broke that I I took my car to this like junkyard that I had seen on TV, where they're like, "We'll give you cash for your car," and like I drove the car in and I was like thinking I would get a a couple thousand dollars right and like I get there and the guy offered me 85 bucks (laughs) and I was like you know the feeling. I was like, I, I, I know that feeling mad at myself for being so dumb to think that I was gonna get two thousand dollars but also so desperate that the 85 looked good so i'm i'm pulling to the lot the guy tells me he'll give me 85 bucks i had like a two second crisis of conscience and then i decided like okay sure so i'm like cleaning out because i didn't think to clean out my car beforehand he gives me a garbage bag i clean all of my worldly possessions into this garbage bag (gasps) and i'm like walking (laughs) it was down this long driveway i'm walking down this driveway with my garbage bag full of stuff my $85. And then I realized that I am so far out of town. And this is like in 1999. There's no Uber. I would have had to like walk to a payphone to call a cab. So I'm, wa- I'm walking down the street with a garbage bag full of stuff. I walk into this Home Depot and I was like, could somebody here call me a cab? And they called me a cab and it cost me $60 to get home. <laughs> So I essentially sold a whole motherfucking car for $25 $25 profit. (laughs) And it's like, I will never forget that feeling. Every time I get into our, you know, new leased car (laughs) with like, you know, 32 miles on it or whatever, I'm always going to think about like selling that car for 25 bucks. So a part a part of me again I, I I savor that that feeling that anxiety, you know I I even think back to okay when my car got repossessed and I had to like lie to get some money and part of that lie included me joining a church 
um, <laughs> just so I could be a part of the church's credit union. And I feel like admitting this out loud, it's good that you're not in a room with me because I think I'm going to get struck by lightning <laughs> right now. But that literally definitely happened. And I did that. I did that. I lied to Jesus for $400. Um, and so that's real though. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, real. it's real. And, but I mean, I've sat through uh, church many times just because there was a dinner after. Oh yeah. Yeah. Every, everyone's you done that. You gotta do what every, you gotta everyone's do. Done the that. Lord understands. Yeah. If I've, no one else understands God. I've spent entire Sunday or Saturday mornings at, in the Trader Joe's just going from aisle to aisle for the free samples. Like I've definitely there done that. And you know, yeah. getting church food is the same thing. And yeah. And so, so there's a but, and, and I guess the but here with with you know having this anxiety and, and and savoring it, for me, okay. So a couple years ago, I found out that I have um, like aneurysm. I had this like very like rare um, condition called Takawaisu's arteritis, and so because of this, I have to, you know, I have to monitor it, and part of the monitoring is I have to keep my blood pressure down. And I already, I don't have high blood pressure, that, so that's not really like an issue, but I have to take lisinopril to make sure that it stays down. And so that anxiety, though, that we rely on, that is a part of my work, that is a part of how I define myself, that raises blood pressure. And so, oh, so, yeah. and so there's like this dilemma where again, I want this thing. I want that anxiety. I want that pressure. I want that feeling because it centers me. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me sane, I believe. But I also realized that getting too much of it could hurt me physically. Right. Yeah. Now. And, yeah. and you know, and, and in a, and in a way that I kill me literally, and so. Well, now you've made it serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where you know, you know, is this thing while black? You know, there are all of these. You know, we we call them. They're called microaggressions, but. You know, that word doesn't necessarily encapsulate the violence of some of this shit sometimes and how life-threatening these feelings can be, you know, where we, you know, sometimes define ourselves by that anxiety or or remembering and, 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 and being like a part of like a certain struggle, even if you don't want the struggle, but just recognizing and having a relationship with it. But mm-hmm. but all of that shit adds up. All of that shit does. And that's, you know, that that is why. I mean, that's the reason why, one of the reasons why, you know, we talk about health outcomes and, and, and things of that nature, life expectancy. All that shit contributes to that. Yeah. And, and I, um, and so I asked myself, it's like, well, would I rather be, 15% less me if it extends my life by 5% more years. What have you decided? I, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs>
I was a year out of college. I worked at a nonprofit, and my roommates and I would go out a lot, and we went to a club, and I tried to pay the cover in coins. Somehow I got in. One time I had this girl. She wanted to buy some sexy underwear, so we went downtown Pittsburgh to one of those fancy department stores that's in an old, like, building with gargoyles on it and so we went in there and she bought this sexy underwear and it was really cool and she was sort of like oh look there's the men's section and you know i got really nervous and she was like oh check it out look at those i love these and they were like these boxer briefs and i'd never seen them so i had a checkbook on me and this was before i even had a debit card i put the underwear on the counter and the woman looked at my check and she said, I'm going to have to frank this check. I had no idea who Frank was or what was going on. So she ran through this machine, and this underwear was $13, and my check got rejected. We were on a mission to get her sexy underwear, and I destroyed that mission by not being able to afford the fucking drawers. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Yes, I am. Like I knew that I would. No, a dance too? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk starts the morning on a high note. Yow! Songs, dances, and dad jokes. So good. So good. I got you. Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So I was still feeling kind of self-conscious about the whole Maserati thing, and my plan was to hit up some of my homies who, who get on this podcast and help me justify the decision. But no one picked up the phone. So instead, I, I called Mirza Baradaran, um, who's a law professor at UC Irvine, and also the author of The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap, which examines black banking and the racial wealth gap, like it says right there in the subtitle. But really, I, I, I called her to unpack what growing up broke in America does to us. So I have a confession to make to you. Um, getting you on this show was like a Trojan horse. Because, um, yeah, we're talking about finances and money or whatever. But I, I need you to justify a purchase that I made. When I got the first check from my book deal, 
in 2016, I bought a Maserati. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you responded that way. That's <laughs> because, awesome. Yeah. Because I, there's a, there is, I, I know that I still feel the shame of growing up broke. And I know that this is a very, like, obvious overcompensation for that shame. I've since traded it in because I have two small kids and having two car seats in the back of that just was ridiculous. But um, basically, I want you to tell me that it was okay. <laughs> that, that what I did, that what I did didn't, didn't, didn't push my people back, you know, to 200 years. Uh, I'm sorry that you felt that because I think there's nothing worse than feeling the shame and then feeling the shame after you're trying to remedy the shame in the first place, right? <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I think our relationship to things and money is very much psychological. Um, you know about the marshmallow test. It's a long-term study of these kids that were brought into this lab, you know, back in the day. And the researcher says to the kid, um, you can have this marshmallow now or you can wait and I'm going to leave and come back. Um, and if you wait until then, then you can have like three marshmallows or like, you know, something, so some sort of treat. And yeah, it turns out, you know, after you know many, many years, the kids who waited for that second or third marshmallow were, you know, just better in life and had better grades and graduated and, you know, avoided substance abuse. And just like, it's like a sign of success, like delayed gratification. It turns out that a lot of the kids that get studied are Stanford professor kids, right? So wealthy, white. And there's this a professor at Rochester, I think, who redid the study. I wish I knew her name as a woman. She did it with poor kids. Same test and measured. And so one of the things that they do is that they can measure your heart rate so they can know if you're making like a cool, rational decision versus a hot, like, I'm just going to take it decision. And, and one of the things in the study was that for poor kids, the cool, rational, good decision is to eat that marshmallow because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't trust the sort of like lab coded people to not lie to you because you have life experience, right? You know, there's a lot of studies like this where um, people misunderstand like human reaction and ra reason because they're just measuring people who don't have these other like things going on. So if you're poor, the right decision is to buy the $300 sneakers. Like, you know what? Yeah, you know, maybe we're struggling a bit, but yeah, I have this thing. I bought this really nice shirt that I wanted and I just feel good today. I feel good today while I'm wearing it. And and you should be able to be allowed to feel good yes. about, about and, these things. And these purchases are, when we're talking about like the racial wealth gap, these purchases are like drops in the bucket of the difference. So if, you know, we're talking about the equity that white families have versus black families, we're not talking about, we're talking about like 30 Maseratis here, <laughs> like per family. It's mm. not, it's not <laughs> yeah. like coming down to sneakers and watches and stuff like that. There's not an amount of material goods that would make up that difference. We are talking about legacies of, of yeah privilege and power yeah and you know in in this conversation or or i guess this narrative of personal responsibility has existed um for 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 centuries also where if we you know saved better or if we were more prudent or if we were more responsible um you know um that we would you know fear better financially and the reality is that we could 
do all that stuff and we've been doing all that stuff. I mean, the, the data shows this, actually. And, and poverty heightens your sense of money, inflow and outflow. Ask any poor person how much money they have in their bank account, how much do their groceries cost this month? And, and they've done these studies. And even simple as like outside the grocery store, you ask a middle class or high wealth shopper, how much did you just spend and pick out a few items? How much was this? And they have no idea. And you ask a poor person and they know exactly how much the total was. They know exactly how much each thing costs. And so tell me about financial education. Like who needs to be educated on money? And the same with, you know, payday loans are like, well, that's stupid. Don't take out a, you know, high interest loan. Well, what, what are the options? I could get kicked out. I get evicted. I've got kids, right? Their, their safety and sense of well-being versus I could go take out $500 and stay another month and, and try to make it up with wages or whatever. So th- these are rational decisions. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, and I've, I've been fortunate in the last four or five years where my financial circumstances have changed pretty drastically. And, and I recall like a couple years ago, something happened. I put on a pair of pants. I reached into the pocket and I found two $20 bills. Now, I have I have found money before, like a dollar, a $5 bill, some change, but I, I had never been in a circumstance where $40 was missing and I had no idea where it was. And 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 again, as you were saying, that's a luxury of of middle class and that's one of those invisible luxuries that people, you know, who who experience it you know, don't necessarily realize is a privilege, is a luxury. Because when I didn't have any money, I knew if you would have just just stopped me in the street, how much money you have? Um, thirty eight dollars and sixteen cents are in my bank account right now. <laughs> I think when people talk about financial education at the policy level, this is where I think it matters, and this is where you know I spend a lot of time up there. Is people have no sense of what it's like to be poor. And, and what I try to explain about poverty, and I don't know what it's like to be black and poor. I don't know what it's like to be um, vulnerable to violence. I can imagine, um, because I have had experiences in my life where I can't explain to you, you know, as a woman, what it's like to feel like your body potentially uh, being the, the site of, of violence. I, I, I can feel that. Um, I think that the idea of um, that sort of knowledge is is a is an earned knowledge that a lot of policymakers don't have. And so what they see as poverty is them with less money. Um, and and what poverty is is a whole ecosystem of worries and stresses and interactions and you know feelings of self-esteem, like you said, performance that that people cannot understand unless you're in it. So I guess this is where I'm supposed to share all that I've learned and that my relationship with money is toxic and ain't my fault. And since it's toxic and ain't my fault, I should be able to fix it. I should want to fix it. But here I am today telling y'all about my deepest insecurities and shames. And yeah, I'm doing it because I'm trying to figure things out about myself and tell a larger story about Black America through a deeply personal one. And sure, I'm hoping that getting to the root of some of these vulnerabilities and contradictions will make me a better writer. And maybe a better person too, but I don't, I don't really give a shit about that. 
but I could do all that stuff on my own. Off mic. I'm here, speaking to y'all, because I'm getting paid to. I'm addicted to making money. And not just money to live and to eat, but to upcharge money. <laughs> Where I can get shrimp on a salad and not blink. NBA League Pass money. New tattoo money. And yeah, cheapest Maserati money. And yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I know it's, it's not my fault. I know this addiction is a consequence of centuries of plunder, of indoctrination, of socialization, of white supremacy. And I know it could be snatched away as quickly as it came. It's hard out here right now. Which should make me more into saving money than performing with it. That would be smart. That would be mature. Maybe that would even reduce the stress and the pressure I feel about making it. The problem is that spending money is a stress reliever. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm killing myself to make it. But buying shit with it, it, it feels like that's keeping me alive. And I mean, shit, if every day's a rainy day, and we're all going to drown eventually anyway, why not have some fun before the flood? Stuck with Damon Young is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Damon Young. Ruben Davis is our executive producer. Our producers are Ashley Velez, Morgan Moody, Carlton Gillespie, Priscilla Alabi, Stephen Hoffman, and Corinne Gilliard. Mixing and sound design by Jesse Nas, Charlotte Landis, and Veronica Simonetti. Theme music and score by Open Mike Eagle. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Tanya Sominator, Sarah Geismer, and Katie Long. From Gimlet, our executive producers are Rosie Guerin, Crystal Hall Stressler, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polgreen.